place if a tree line breaks in the wide open space. I stare at a bright red sun, I search all day and never find anyone. last week as you turn there, let me remind you that basically what we're doing, the simple idea of our, of our series is basically this, is that um, the Exodus story is basically in a nutshell the story of salvation. And so as we read through Exodus, it's actually going to be a beautiful place for you and for me to learn the gospel from the Old Testament. To learn about, remember what I said last week, the bite-sized pieces, to learn about how Israel starts in slavery but then the Lord rescues them in powerful and mighty ways. And then the, four, the third kind of stage is them wandering, learning to trust God in the wilderness. And then the last phase is him leading them home into the promised land. And that is your, that's your life and that's my life, your believer. That's actually what Jesus is doing in your life. And you're never going to understand what he's doing in your life unless you understand this story. So with that being said, let's read Exodus 1. Uh, tonight we're looking at slavery. So let's read Exodus 1, verses 1 to 14. I'll read it for us. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there was a a new king, there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. So what's he going to do with all these people? He's got all tons and tons of Israelites, what's he going to do with them? Uh Aha, I know what I'm going to do, slave labor. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is God's word. Let's pray together, and then we'll dive into it. Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We pray that you would make it tonight, uh, that you would make us to taste and see not only its truth, but its goodness. That we would taste and see your goodness. Lord, some of us know, and we've heard all of our lives, that you are good, but so many of us have never tasted it. And Father, I pray for myself and for my friends that you would let us taste of your goodness tonight as we look at the way you treat those of us who are in bondage and in slavery. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, whenever someone asks me the question, Sammy, what are your hobbies? Uh, I never really have a a very good answer because um, sometimes I like to say that I am an avid indoorsman. So I don't love the outdoors. So when I talk about my hobbies, they're namely music and movies. But one of my favorite all-time movies, is, which is some of your, one of your probably favorite movies, is one that we watched actually last fall, is The Shawshank Redemption. 
I feel a little bit cliche when I'm like, that's my favorite movie, because I want to like, be like, I have a cooler favorite movie. But if I'm being honest, I, just, I love the story of the Shawshank Redemption. And if you know the story, there's a particular scene in that story, in that movie, where Red and Andy are talking about the idea of just being inside the prison walls and living inside what for Red and for Andy is a life, uh, a sentence of, of life in prison. And do you remember the scene where, where Red, Brooks has just gotten out, if you know the story, and Brooks has had that sad ending? Um, you know, I'm not going to say spoiler alert because you know, I think you've seen Shawshank, but Brooks kills himself because he can't live beyond the walls. And then here's what Red says about living inside those prison walls. Listen to what he says to Andy. He said, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so that you depend on them. That's institutionalized. They send you in here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. And as I thought about Israel and what it felt like to be, and if you can imagine with me for a second, kind of the Morgan Freeman of the Israelites, if there was, there, surely there was one, which would be when we get to the promised land, uh, I would love to meet this guy. But that, that these words could have been in his lips. That there's a strange way, as we read the book of Exodus, that on the one hand, the people have been enslaved and they hate it. And yet on the other hand, and this is where it's so true of you and me, and the other hand, that's all they're used to. And so there's a secret part of them that actually loves it because it's comfortable. And that's what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the idea of, of our ensla- or being enslaved. That you and I are actually, we're not free. Jesus actually said about us, if anyone commits sin, he is a slave to sin. And as far as I know, if I said, okay, who of us hasn't committed a sin? Like if you raise your hand, like you, this is probably a good time to leave. Um, actually, don't leave. Stay. Because I want you to hear the gospel. But that you and I, we, we know that we've committed sin. And Jesus says if we've ever committed sin, that we're actually slaves to sin. That you and I are actually like the Israelites. We have harsh taskmasters that we go to that are not Jesus. And so what I want to do tonight is three things as we think about this idea of slavery. Three things I want to look at. First, our slavery is real. Second, our slavery has layers. It's layered. And then lastly, what I want to talk about is our slavery demands a deliverer. So our slavery is real, our slavery has layers, and then lastly, our slavery demands a deliverer. That we actually can't do anything to set us free, we need a deliverer. So think with me for a little bit about that our slavery is real. And what do I mean by that? When we read Exodus, it's pretty clear, Israel was, on the one hand, physically enslaved. But there's another hand, as we read the story, that they were spiritually enslaved. There are going to be points along the journey where Moses has led them through the Red Sea, which we're going to get to that. And they're wandering in the wilderness and they literally say, Moses, what are you doing? It would be so much better if we could go back and like have the, the, the luxury of the life, the comfort of Egypt. Leaving Egypt is way harder than you think it would be. And that's true for you and me too. You and I are not physical slaves, but you and I definitely are spiritually enslaved. That, that we have Egypt. Even as we sing tonight, take the world but give me Jesus. Do we really want that? Because there's a lot in the world that we love. There's a lot in Egypt that we love, that we go to, that we're enslaved by. Um, and again, that's why Jesus, and when he says to the Pharisees, listen, if you've committed sin, you're a slave to sin. There's something actually is controlling you. Something actually has a hold. It might not have a hold of your body, but it's got a hold of your heart. Your heart still has slavishness, and my heart still has slavishness 
about it. Listen to, there's a book, by the way, if you're a book person, this is the book and you're looking for like a companion study to read along with this Exodus story. This is the book to get. It's a book by uh, Chuck DeGroat. He's a, he's a counselor out in San Francisco. And uh, the book is called Leaving uh, Egypt, Learning to Trust God in the Wilderness. It is fantastic. And listen to what he says about this idea that you and I are slaves. However you see yourself, that you and I are actually slaves. Listen to what he says. He says, are we not all slaves? The Exodus story would answer yes. Yes, we are all slaves. We're slaves to image and appearance. We're slaves to substances and relationships. We're slaves to compulsive behaviors and abusive systems. We're all enslaved and ensnared by the Egypts in our lives and the pharaohs that demand our allegiance. This is a moment for me that really illustrated this. Is um, when my wife and I lived in Statesboro. We, for whatever reason, we we tried to go without cable, so we got the basic basic cable, which is so depressing because you get like six channels, you know, and one's like C-SPAN. Which, if you like C-SPAN, more power to you. Um, you are welcome here, but I don't understand that at all. But one of the perks was, for whatever reason, our cable guy left us with HBO, so we got to watch some, some decent shows. And there was one, if you remember, two years ago, HBO had a special where it was Lady Gaga in Madison Square Garden. And yes, I watched it with my wife. Um, mainly it was me, but my wife was there. And, uh, but there was, a, there was a powerful, powerful moment where Lady Gaga, she's about to go to, I think historically it's one of the, the biggest shows to ever happen at Madison Square Garden. And here she is. Here's Lady Gaga. She's got everything that some of us want, right? She's got little monsters. She's got fans. You know, you and I, what we desperately need, I tell this all the time, what I, what I really want are fans, but what I really need are friends. But she's got fans. She's got money. She's got all kinds of money. Lady Gaga could, you know, she probably, I mean, she's got tons and tons and tons of money. She's got success. And yet, there was this powerful moment in the, docu- in the, um, in the show where it's back, they're backstage, the cameras are backstage with, with Gaga. Can I call her that? With, with the lady herself? Uh, sometimes I think it would be sweet to be her husband because there could be a, a Duke of Gaga, which would be incredible. But um, there's this moment where she's, she's backstage and she starts crying. And she says... I have all of this, literally what she says, I have all this, and yet I still feel like such a loser. And she says, and it's really powerful, she says, I still feel like that loser kid in high school. And I feel like I've just got to pick myself up and tell myself that I am a superstar, and I'm going to prove all of those people in high school wrong. And the thing that came home to me was, okay, here's Lady Gaga, she's got everything that we would want, and yet she's enslaved. She's enslaved to approval. She's enslaved to the anger that she experienced. The, the, the terrible... Listen, middle school and high school are some of the worst. Some of, the, like, some of you need Jesus to take you back to seventh grade. And just like weep with you in seventh grade. Because you were bullied. Because you, know, you were humiliated. And, that's what she, and she's enslaved to anger and approval. All, listen... Every one of us, we can say with Israel, we know what it's like to be slaves. We know what it's like to be enslaved. Now, this is the second thing I want you to see. So first, we can say, okay, our slavery really is real. It might not be physical, but you and I have a slavishness about our hearts. There are things, whether it's approval or anger, we're going to talk about some in this next point, that enslave us, that drive us. And this is the second thing I want you to say. Is not only is this real, but it has layers. 
What do I mean by that? What do I mean by our slavery has layers? Here's what I mean by that. It means that it goes deep. That this is not a simple thing to look at. When, if, you, if we were like putting it, if we're going back to biology class in high school and we're kind of putting our slavery under the microscope, like we would see it's got, it's got layers. And in particular, it's got four layers that I want you to see. We could give more, but there are four layers of our slavery, of your slavery and my slavery, that I want you to see tonight. And here they are, four of them. Here's the first. The first layer is what I want to call objective guilt. The first layer of our slavery is objective guilt. What do I mean by that? Sometimes the Bible envisions sin. I don't know how you think about sin. But sometimes the Bible envisions sin like this. That sin is actually stealing from God. That it's an act of rebellion that steals something from Him. It steals glory from Him. It steals love from Him. That's why Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you and I can say we have not done that, but we have loved some things with all our heart, soul, minds, and strengths. We haven't loved God. We've stolen it from him. So if sin, this idea that sin, I want to say it, it's cosmic debt. That's, that's a weird way to put it, but here's what I mean. It's basically because if sin is this idea that we're stealing something from God, it means we're running up a bill. We're running up a bill. What I want you to see is that it's a bill that if you were to actually get that bill in the mail, you would open it and you would fall to your knees because you would know there's no way on earth you could ever pay that bill. Uh, here's what I always think about. So when I was a freshman in college, I don't think they do this anymore, which is like really a really good thing. But when I was a freshman, they would go around campus and, and have little credit card booths. And so like freshmen could like be like, you mean I can get a credit card with like $1,000 or $2,000 limit and my parents don't even have to know about it? Yes, please. This is amazing. So of course I went, got my little credit card. And if you know me, I am like, if you need money advice, don't come see me because I'm not the guy to come see. I am not great with money. And so here I am. I get this credit card and I just start spending like crazy. I mean, I didn't buy anything. Like, I think I bought like, you know, I got groceries, you know, like I didn't buy anything extravagant. I wasn't like going to five points and racking up a bill, but I was like going to like the grocery store and getting like big boxes of cereal, which is, (laughs) I was pretty depressed in college. We'll talk about this at some point. Um, I was getting, like, video games. Anyways, uh, but I ran up this bill. And what would happen, every month, they would send a bill to my address, and I would, I would just tear it up. I wouldn't look at it. And they would send another one the next month, and I would, well, this is a true story. I would tear it up and not look at it. <laughs> you know where this is going. So, uh, so finally, it's right before Christmas break. I get the bill. I take it home. My mom opens it. And this is not exaggeration. It's literally, like, $2,000. And I'm like, oh, there might have been some curse words said at that moment. How am I going to pay for this? And the long story short, I had an aunt who like saw it and, and kind of rescued me. You know, she paid it for me, which is actually a powerful moment of the gospel for me. Um, but that's, that's why I love the way that Arcade Fire says it. Do you really think, when Arcade Fire says, do you really think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? Do you really think you can take care of that bill? No. There's nothing you can do about it. You don't have enough money in the world to pay down your cosmic debt. So first, it's objective guilt. You need someone to deliver you from that. You need someone to, can I say this one? You need, you need an, a rich aunt to pay that bill. Thankfully, Jesus is not a rich aunt. We're going to get to Jesus. But you need objective guilt. Here's the second layer. You have objective guilt, but then you've got subjective guilt. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. 
there's a profound difference. I have a friend that likes to say, and I love the way he says it. He likes to say, okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I really do believe. A lot of you are here say, I really do believe that that's how I understand Jesus, that Jesus really has paid, he's paid that death that I might go free. And he likes to say, you know, I know that I'm forgiven, but I don't feel forgiven. And that's a whole lot of you. You know the gospel, but you don't feel the gospel. Can I say it that way? You know, I like the way that Rosemary, um, Rosemary uh, 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 Miller likes to say that, you know, I, she likes to say sometimes I always heard, um, always heard the gospel, but I never heard the music of the gospel. I always heard the words of the gospel, but I always missed the music. That's a lot of you tonight. You've heard the words all of your life, but you've never heard the music. The gospel has never made you dance, Right? And you live in subjective guilt. Now, part of that is because you and I, and this is interesting to think about, and we're going to get to this in Exodus, but part of where that comes from, and I see this all the time in my daughter. She's like a living example of this for me almost daily. But you and I were created to be perfect, right? You know, like this in Scripture when it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Like you and I before the fall, that's how we were meant to live. We were meant to live these, these perfect lives of fellowship and love and glory with God. So there's something in us that knows. Like just being a human being, you know that you've fallen short. Because you know that you're not perfect. And yet there's part of you that thinks you should be perfect. And so you live in this constant state of guilt with yourself. And you hate yourself. And you look at yourself with shame. My, my, I went to, um, to, to my kids. One of the things that's been fun lately as I go to eat lunch with my kids at school. They eat lunch crazy. I don't know if this is your case, but they, like my son eats lunch at like 10 o'clock. They're like little hobbits. This is like a little meal. Like I'm like 10 o'clock. That's not lunch. That's brunch. I mean, that's breakfast slash brunch. So like 10 and 11, but I go and eat with my kids. And what I like to do with my son is we'll eat. And then he loves to play Angry Birds, Star Wars. So we'll play like a couple levels of Angry Birds, Star Wars, which is a lot of fun. And then with my daughter, though, she's not so into that. So we play Hangman. She loves to play Hangman. So we'll get the little, I got my iPhone out, my little chalkboard thing, and we'll do Hangman. And I noticed, I'm trying to challenge her a little more. And there was this moment for me that was so big for me where she's, I'm giving her the word. She's got like, all she has in the Hangman is like the head. She's got like six more guesses. But she's like taking forever. And I'm trying to be patient with her. I'm like, okay, Jane Mac, like, you got like six more guesses. Just start, just start saying letters. And finally I want to like grab her. Just say some letters. <laughs> And she's like, no, no. And then finally she said, it was a powerful moment. She said, I don't, I don't want to get this wrong. And she lit, my daughter, she, she's a first child. She's like me. And a lot of you are like this. You live in fear of being imperfect. You live in fear of getting things wrong. And you live in this with this subjective guilt. And what's going to free you from that? The gospel. The gospel is good news that actually says you're free to fail. Because you belong to one who will never fail you. And that begins to free you, right? So first, objective guilt. Second, subjective guilt. And then two more layers. Here are three and four. Three is a layer I want to just call addictions. In this room tonight, there are all kinds of addictions. And in my life, I've experienced addictions. And here's what I mean by that. We're addicted to all kinds of substances. I mean, it can be anything from your normal sort of alcohol, drugs, whatever, you know, pain pills. It can be, it can be porn. It can be all kinds of sexual things. It can be, you know, all, there can be food. It can be all kinds of addictions. This is a substance that you look to and you say, if I have this, I will feel better about myself. It's, your, it's sort of a strategy if you think about life. It's a strategy of coping with the hardness and the pain of life. And, um, 
And here's how you know. Here's kind of the litmus test to know that you're addicted to something. This is my counselor said this to me years ago. It's been very helpful. And here's how you know that there's something that could be an addiction in your life. And here's what he said to me. He said, Sammy, here's how you know is you can stop, but you can't stay stopped. You can stop so you get rid of it or you stop for a little while, but you can't stay stopped. You always go back to it. It has power over you. Because you've learned from whatever age that this is something I can go to to escape. That this is something I can go to to give me life and meaning and comfort. Um, there's a, a, a weird movie with Billy Bob Thornton and Halle Berry uh, that was came out probably 10 plus years ago called Monster's Ball. I, I doubt many of you have seen it. But there's a scene in Monster's Ball where Billy Bob Thornton plays this cop who kind of visits this, this prostitute house. And Halle Berry plays this, this poor lady whose son has just died. And she comes over, and it's a really powerful moment because she comes over to Billy Bob's Thorn. She's literally just learned that night her son has been hit by a car and he's dead. And she goes to Billy Bob Thornton's house, and all she knows to do, she's lived her whole life looking to sex to solve her problems. And it's the most uncomfortable sex scene you've ever seen because here she is, she's grieving, she's weeping, and she grabs, she tries to start taking Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, it's just awkward just because of these two celebrities. But she's weeping, and she's trying to get things going with Billy Bob. And she says, and this, she's, this is a huge moment, she says, she, over and over, she says, make me feel good, make me feel good, make me feel good. And that's what you and I do in our addictions. We have something that we go to over and over again. And if we were to say what was going on in our hearts out loud, that would be what we would say. Make me feel good. Whatever it is for you. But what I want you to see is it's got power over you. You're actually enslaved to it. You've tried to quit it. You've put up boundaries. You've said, okay, I'm going to not do this and I'm going to start doing that. And How's that working for you? It's an addiction. Here's the fourth layer. It's the fourth layer that you've heard me probably talk about before. And it's the layer of idols. Because some of you are like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I don't buy it yet. Well, here's the one that nails all of us. And it's the idea of idols. What's the biblical idea of idols? The biblical idea of idols is that even what we say that we love God, an idol is anything that you love and want more than God. Now, as tricky as that means it can be all kinds of good things. Megan shared it tonight. It's very possible if you're wrestling with singleness that actually that, that, that finding romantic love is an idol to you because you think you're going to be happy. That, yeah, Jesus is good, but I'll really be happy when I get a boyfriend or I get a girlfriend. <laughs> Or, yeah, Jesus is, he, Jesus is cool, but I'll really be happy when I have a family. Or, Jesus is great, he's my Lord and Savior, woo, praise him, but I'll really be happy when I graduate cum laude, or, I don't even know, you know, clearly I didn't graduate, summa, summa cum laude, whatever it's called. But that's real for a lot of you. Okay, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I love him, praise him, but I'll really be happy when you fill in the blank. And whatever that thing is that you love and you want, when you're being honest in your most honest moments, that is your idol. Luther used to say, whatever you put your trust and hope in, that whatever you say about God, that is your God. Wherever you put your hope and trust and faith, that is your God and that is an idol. And we have all kinds. There was a girl, I was in Statesboro, uh, Georgia for five years doing RUF. And there was a girl there where literally her story was, she was as happy as, as, a, as, happy as a clam. I've never understood that uh, line before, but as, however clams are happy, uh, she was as happy as a clam when she had this guy. And when the guy broke up with her, and this had, we watched this happen like five times, like not exaggerating. Like she, he would, she would go to him, and she would give him anything he wanted. 
And all she wanted from him was for him to marry her. That's all, he, all she wanted, which is kind of a lot, but that's all she wanted. And so, and then he would break her heart time after time after time. And she would come back and she would be like, so, like, I've never had many students yell at me, but like, one time we're in the car and I'm like trying to talk to, you know, tell her about, the, like, Jesus loves you. And it sounded so shallow. She just like yelled at me. She just like went totally Jekyll and Hyde at me. She just yelled all over me. I was like, okay, lesson learned. Um, but the idea was he was an idol to her. He had power over her. When he would text her, she was happy. When he would hang out with other girls, she was miserable. By the way, that's the test of, okay, back to the litmus test idea. How do you know something's an idol in your life? You, you know the scene in um, that movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, 500 Days of Summer, when he has summer and that scene where he's like dancing through the streets and like singing, you know? And then the scenes where like he doesn't have her and he's like crushed and like wants to kill himself. That's how you know something's an idol in your life. When you've got it, you're like dancing through the streets, you want to sing some hollow notes with your friends. And then when you don't have it, you're like, I can't get out of bed today. You know, just bring me some Chick-fil-A, you know, how, whatever it is for you. And Jesus, he loves you too much to be controlled that much by anything other than him. And this is what I want you to see. And this is where Paul is interesting. If you were to read two books side by side to read Exodus and read Romans. Because this is what Paul says in Romans 7. He talks about the struggle, right? He says, God, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. I'm enslaved to my sinful natures and desires. And then he says that line. You remember when he says, he says, who will, and he cries, it's like he cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is what I want you to see. It's the last thing. Is that this slavery, you, I hope you feel that you can't just get out of this yourself. Like if you think the Christian life is about, okay, I got my checklist and I'm like doing it. And I'm, I'm being a good Christian. Like you don't understand the first thing about Christianity. Because to be a Christian means you were in bondage and Jesus has begun to deliver you. And Jesus is doing something that you cannot do for yourself. Namely, saving you, rescuing you, delivering you. And this is the last thing I want you to see is our slavery demands a deliverer. And here's how I like to think about it. I'm a big Batman fan. Uh, like I grew up in the, the Batman animated series is like the best. I still think it's the best TV show of all time. But the way it works for me is when I watch Batman, I'm like, yeah. I'm like Batman. Like I'm, like I'm a, you know, like I can, approach, you know, like take care of things in my life. Like I'm a respectable guy. Like yeah, I'm kind of Batman. And the reality is, the thing about today is, no, you're not Batman. You're you're the guy that needs Batman to come save him. Like you're that guy. <laughs> Jesus is Batman, and you're the guy that like you can't save yourself. Like you need Batman to come save you, and that's who we are. And this is the last thing I want you to see is that we had, that God has provided us, we, our slavery demands a deliverer, and praise God, he's, he's provided one. Now here's in the Exodus story. Israel's helpless, powerless, they cry out to God, and what does God do? We're going to talk about this next week more. God raises up Moses. Why is Moses like the perfect deliverer for them? You ever thought about this? Here's why. It's because on the one hand, he is one of them. He is an Israelite himself. But on the other hand, he is close with God. He knows God. God is using him. But that pales in comparison to the deliverer deliverer that God has provided us in Jesus. Because Jesus is not just one of us. But he's God. He's one with God. And he comes. 
And he, and he begins to lead us out of whatever it is we've been enslaved to. And he begins to, to, to bring water and life into the deserts and pits of our lives. And he begins to lead us out. And this is the thing that I've been reading this and, and thinking about the difference between Moses, how Moses is a picture to us of what Jesus is like. Because you're going to hear this a lot from me this semester, that Moses, in so many ways, gives us a bigger picture of Jesus. Because Jesus is not only the true and better Mr. Darcy, but he's the true and better Moses. And what that means is, and this is in particular what I was thinking about today, is you remember there are going to be times and stories that we get to where Moses just loses it with the people. Here he is, and he's, he, God is using him to lead them out of bondage. And you remember the scenes where like, they're traveling through the wilderness, and the people are grumbling and complaining after God has, oh, I don't know, provided bread from the sky, <laughs> right, like manna. And they're like, oh, this manna doesn't taste very good today. We wish we could go back to Egypt, you know. And God is providing time. And Moses just, remember when he, when he strikes the rock, he gets so mad at them. And there are times where Moses wants to yell that he wants to scold them out of bondage. But not Jesus. What I love about Jesus is he doesn't, if you think this way about Jesus, you've got him wrong. He doesn't want to scold you out of bondage. Jesus doesn't ever scold us out of our sins. He's going to love you out of bondage. And he's going to love you out of your sins. And he's going to show you while he's with you, time and time again, why he's better. Like some of you need to tonight to go make a list why Jesus is better than your idol. Why Jesus' approval is better than these people's approval. Why Jesus' love is better than, sorry boyfriends and girlfriends, but their love. I mean, like if you think your love compares to Jesus, let's have coffee. Jesus. Jesus is the one. There's a scene, um, I know I've done a lot of movies tonight, let's do one more. Um, Yeah. Uh, favorite movie, uh, Traffic. I don't know if you've ever seen Traffic, but there's uh, Michael Douglas is one of the, the main characters, and basically the story is he's the kind of the he's uh, in charge of the drug task force, and he's kind of trying to lead the charge in the war on drugs in America. While at the same time, his daughter is just completely enslaved to crack cocaine, and uh, and as he's trying to kind of lead the charge, his daughter's just going and kind of sleeping with all kinds of guys just to get some crack. And there's a powerful scene in there where. She's gone, and he can't find her, and he finally searches through all the city, through all the city, and he finally finds the house of the drug dealer, and he forces his way into the room, and he, and here's his daughter, she's just, this guy's just had his way with her, and she's lying on the bed, she's totally high, she's just out of it, and you think, like, if I'm that father, you would think he's going to bust through that door and say, what are you doing? Get up! Get your, out of bed, and let's go home. What are you, what are you doing with your life? But that's not what he does. He opens the door and he goes and he kneels by her bed and he just brushes her hair and he kisses her and he picks her up into his arms and he takes her home. That's just a small picture of the way Jesus loves you. He's not going to scold you out of your sins. He's going to love you. He's going to love you out of your bondage. And here's the question for you and me. Last question. Where does Jesus need to love you out of bondage? What are you enslaved to tonight? That Jesus needs to come and meet you where you are and hold you in his arms and lead you out and lead you home. Let's pray.
Lord, we confess that um, sometimes you, your uh, love and your grace seem too good to be true. And um, Lord, there are a lot of us here who just, that's not our view of you. And, uh, and no wonder we don't want anything to do with Christianity and we don't want anything to do with you. But Lord, I pray for those of us especially who have just a, a wrong and harsh view of who you are, that you would change that. That you would melt our hearts tonight. You would show us who you are. Lord, we want to know you. And Lord, I pray that you would convince us that, that in knowing you, that is life itself. Because you are so good. And so good beyond our wildest imagination. And Lord, I pray that, that, would, um, that we would not only know that tonight, but that we would taste it. And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. I'm soon.